0: I'm Emily Rowney, and I'm Alicia Holland.
1: This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and
2: you're listening to Murder in the Rain. On May 2nd, 1996, a crew of electrical workers were walking down a dirt road in Hope, Alaska, about 90 miles south of Anchorage, when something bright red caught their attention. Walking just a few feet off the main road, they discovered the body of 36-year-old Kent Lepik. Laying on his back, his feet dressed in sneakers, jean-covered legs crossed at the ankles, it was his bright red baseball-style jacket that had been spotted by the workers. Within an hour, investigators had the area shut down and the scene was being processed. Kent was indeed deceased, shot once in the back, once in the stomach, and once in the face. As for evidence, there wasn't much— A few shell casings, a couple of footprints. It appeared Kent had gone to the area with a second party. They shot him and left the body. No effort to cover or bury it had been attempted. In his pockets, detectives found some very helpful documents. First, his ID. Second, a receipt from the post office. Third, paperwork for the change of beneficiary for a life insurance policy. One of the names on that paper, Michelle Hughes. Was it his life insurance policy? Oh, I bet you'll find out. Soon, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Identifying Kent quickly allowed officers to notify his family, his brother, and parents who were back home in Michigan. It was three a.m. on a Saturday when Ransom, Kent's brother, was awoken by a knock at the door. By five a.m., he and the officers were at the door of Betsy and Ken Lepic, breaking the news. They couldn't believe that their son, who had finally seemed to be getting on his feet and finding happiness in all aspects of his life, was gone. They also couldn't believe the timing. Just days before, his parents had received a letter from Kent. Well, actually, it was two letters. The first, ramblings of sorts, regarding his life and the goings-on within it, or as a lawyer would later say, it was diagnosable after reading. The second letter was what had his parents worried. It was in an envelope which was marked not to be opened and had been written about in the first letter. The directions were to stash the closed letter in a safe place, perhaps a safety deposit box, and not to open it unless or until something bad happened to him. That's fishy. Part of the first letter read, Put the enclosed envelope in your safe deposit box. Do not open it. I talked to you about insurance policies. This is mine. If I didn't think that things could get a little rough up here, I wouldn't have sent you this. Hmm. Don't get all nervous and call me on the phone about this. That's unsettling. I... Couldn't imagine anything except getting on the phone and being I know. nervous about
0: <laughs> Did they actually follow his directions?
2: No, they actually were incredibly nervous and worried for his safety immediately, so they disregarded his request and they attempted to call Kent as soon as the letters arrived. They had no way of knowing that he was already dead. Once they had heard he had been murdered, their minds immediately went to that second letter and they took it out of the desk drawer. It read... Since you're reading this, you can assume that I'm dead. Don't dwell on that. It was my time, and there's nothing that can change that. There are a few things that I would like you to do for me, though. I hate to be vindictive in my death, but paybacks are hell. First of all, cover all of my debt with you with the insurance money. That I owe you. Then go on a mini-vacation. Act like I am there with you, and do all of the things that I would like to do. Lie on the beach, fish, relax. Two weeks minimum, but not much longer. Gary Brooks would like to own the Togaya, which was the name of his boat. Give it to him if you can. Otherwise, sell it to him so that he can afford it. Owning the boat might make a difference in his life. You can get in touch with him through Ron and Shirley. Talk to Ron and Shirley. Explain to them my situation with Michelle and how it messed me up. I still consider them my friends, and we'd be on better terms if it weren't for Michelle. Use the information enclosed to take Michelle down. Make sure she is prosecuted. Michelle, John, or Scott were the people or persons that probably killed me. Make sure they get burned. Sorry about giving you all this stuff to do. I would have done it, but I wanted to make things work. I wanted to marry Michelle. If that would have happened, this would have all been destroyed. If Michelle had married him, then this letter would have been destroyed. I have kept it as my insurance policy. Use it. I'll rest easier. Do me another favor. Make sure Michelle goes to jail for a long time. But visit her there. Tell her how much I really did, parentheses, do, love her. Tell her you love her and help her. She has a split personality, and the part I fell in love with is very beautiful. I really did want to marry her and make her dreams come true. Love ya, Kent.
0: That is sad, and I am taken aback. I can't even imagine what went through their head when they read that. Yeah, especially to... What are the odds
2: of getting a letter of someone saying if something happens to and me then and then something happens. happens within like hours of that? Yeah, that's ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. The name Michelle, just like on the insurance documents. While investigators in the lower 48 dealt with the letter, the ones in Wasilla were knocking on Michelle's door and they had questions for her about Kent.
1: What do you think about Kent? That's what we're here to talk about.
2: Um, ready?
1: We so You've been having some trouble? Well, not trouble, Um, We have a very unique relationship. Where is? He's dead. We need his body was found. And that's why we're here. We need to get as much information as we can about him. His past. I feel serious.
2: If that audio was too muffled, officers start by asking her about she and Kent's relationship. She opens up, saying that they have some issues, but they're not necessarily troubles, more so that their relationship was unique in that she also had a boyfriend. That's when, with the same compassion as a Venus flytrap, the officers inform her of his death. Wanting to find answers as to who could have done this to Kent or would have the motive, they looked into his life, and that's when things got really interesting. Investigators learned Kent had been living with Michelle. Well, living with her and her other fiancé, John. What? And every once in a while, their other roommate and Michelle's other fiancé, Scott, would stop by.
0: Uh, is she running some sort of cold? Let's go
2: back a bit before this web was so intertwined. Kent Lepik grew up in Michigan with his parents, who were second-generation grocery store owners. They remain a beloved business, earning 2016's Michigan Grocers Association Outstanding Retailer of the Year Award. But in the 90s, things weren't so idyllic for the company. At six foot four and always in cowboy boots and a hat, Kent, known to family and friends as TT, was adventurous, impulsive, energetic, fun, perhaps a bit naive, and at times shy. He was close to his family. That's why it was so devastating to them when their son, who was managing one of the stores, was found to have been embezzling money from the business. Not wanting to send him to jail, his parents instead sent him to Alaska. It seemed like a good fit as he enjoyed living life on the edge. So what's with Alaska? Do they know someone there? My understanding it was kind of like to save the brand and to kind of squash any scandal they didn't want to press charges they just dis- they discovered that he was you know it was kind of like a taping taking money from the till and that kind of thing so i think it was more he's a grown-up we can't send him to boarding school and it's far away so will we'll just that he can't get send in him trouble. to alaska interesting choice yeah once there kent fell in love with the unforgiving nature and found his niche in fishing Working with a fishing company transporting fish from a vessel to port, Kent found himself up to his chest in fish guts, spending weeks, sometimes even months, out at sea, and he loved every part of it. Now that he had escaped his past at home and fell in love with his work, Kent was ready to fall in love with a person. In 1995, he entered what is considered the highest class strip club in the Anchorage area, the Great Alaskan Bush Company Gentlemen's Club. That's when he spotted 23-year-old dancer Michelle Hughes. The 35-year-old was smitten at first sight, the perfect type of customer for Michelle, who specialized in conversation, lending an ear, and easing the loneliness experienced by men working in the solitary conditions Alaska provides. At just 14 years old, Michelle Hughes dropped out of school and used an older sister's ID to get a job dancing. Oh, gosh. At 18, she left Louisiana for New York to pursue a career in modeling. She got some work, but it didn't take off. Back in New Orleans as a dancer, it was 1994 when she and a friend made a trip to Alaska. In Anchorage, they went to the Great Alaskan Bush Company to check out the scene. Once she saw the amount of men, money, and marks, she knew that was the place for her. She had one goal when it came to work, to make enough money to get herself through veterinary school. She had a love of animals, extra compassion for strays, both pets and people. So the path seemed obvious to those that knew her.
0: I imagine that's pretty lucrative there with all the fishermen because they get paid. In and where are they spending their when money? They're done.
2: Yeah. You know, it's not like you're going home if, to a mansion. If they don't and... have a
0: family. Th- yeah. They've got money to burn. Yeah.
2: Well, and also the scheduling. How do you maintain relationships and stuff if you're mm-hmm. like, well, I'm gone for three months and then I'm home for a week and then I'm off. I to know sea. a couple of
0: people who do that and they were definitely single while they worked that yeah. job. Oh, that'd be so grueling.
2: While it has been noted Michelle's dancing might not have been the most impressive, she gave it her all. She put on a show, and she knew how to make connections with people, which is exactly what she was doing the night Kent came in, only a few months after her arrival. After paying for a lap dance, Kent and Michelle struck up a conversation. They got to talking and kept talking and talking. After that encounter, Kent returned nightly. As Michelle continued to bring in 1 to 3000 dollars a night, she also started to receive gifts and extra attention from Kent. Though they never consummated the relationship, it was only a month into knowing one another that Kent proposed.
0: Oh boy. Red Kent, flag. Come on, Kent.
2: Kent was now not only a fiance, but for the first time in his life, he was someone's boyfriend. His greenery didn't matter. He knew Michelle was his soulmate and was totally head over heels in love with her, telling friends that not only was he in love with the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, but he was saving his virginity for her.
0: Uh, How old is he? 34? Uh, Yes, he was in his 30s. Interesting. Turn of events. And I don't think
2: that that's a... Um, that's certainly not a bad thing, but I think that is an interesting... It's just a long... Thing. It kind of tells you something about him a little bit. You
0: hear a lot about people in their early 20s, your mid-20s, but going into your 30s, that's interesting Yeah. to hear. It's not a judgment,
2: but kind of makes you think about maybe social skills yeah, or... Yeah, definitely. F-
0: I feel like you get more of a sense of, of him yeah. as a person, I guess. Yeah.
2: Not to say that's a bad thing for anyone, you know.
1: Uh, I'm a, I was a late bloomer. Yeah. And by age twenty one, I was getting pretty nervous about <laughs> what was what going. What that would to... imply? Yes, Actually, about how how much longer that would have gone on. That
0: right. brings up a good point. I feel like you might have done it in your younger years for like a reason, and I feel like the older you get, maybe it becomes harder to bring it up when you go on well, a date. Yeah. Well, I mean, forty year old
2: or... virgin, his whole thing was like because it's been so long, it keeps taking more time. You know, right. So it's interesting. It's an interesting tidbit. Excited to have his parents meet their future daughter-in-law, Ken and Betsy made a trip to Anchorage to have dinner with the couple. There wasn't judgment from the family regarding Michelle's job. That's because they weren't told how the lovebirds met. Even without that detail, Betsy still felt something was just off. Her son would reach out to his fiance for an embrace or a gentle touch, and she would pull away. It was clear to both parents the degree to which their son loved Michelle was not being reciprocated by her. After meeting, Betsy felt convinced Michelle must have been having relationships with other men. It wasn't long after the engagement with Kent that another man entered the picture. Stopping by the club as part of his travels for work was Scott Hilkey, also in his late 30s. He, too, was spellbound by Michelle's looks and conversation. He quickly took up frequenting the bar and began showering her with gifts. Then Scott proposed. Michelle said yes. Work would keep him out of town about half the time, but that worked for both of them. Within a few months, newly widowed Marine Corps veteran John Carlin III also encountered Michelle. A few months prior, his wife was dying of cancer and had always wanted to see the Northern Lights. The family made their way to Alaska from New Jersey, and she was able to see them before passing two months later. Shortly after her death, John came into a windfall. Proving to a court that while working on the Ben Franklin Bridge, John was exposed to lead paint leading to brain damage, John won a hefty settlement from the state of New Jersey. With $1.3 million in his pocket, he and his teenage son stayed in Alaska, starting a new life. After his wife's death, John began to patronize the club. He didn't feel he had the looks or charm worthy of companionship, so to woo the ladies, he would hand them his ATM card, give them the pin, and tell them to help themselves. And once they saw the amount in his bank account, he would have friends by the end of the night. Now single, he found comfort in Michelle's company. At Christmas 1995, John proposed. According to Michelle, she declined, but in his mind, it might have not been so much a no as a maybe or eventually. The men were not kept secret from each other, but they didn't know everything. As is so common for women in sex work, instead of just being given money, Michelle was given gifts of jewelry, furs, and more. The men would even try to outdo one another. If she was sporting a new piece of jewelry purchased by one of the men, another would call the same jeweler and buy something as well, usually more expensive. Between her three fiancés and all of her other fans, she was doing quite well for herself. And soon enough, she had enough money for a down payment on a home in Wasilla, about 45 miles north of Anchorage. Setting up a home, she and Scott began living together. Staying on the couch, Kent. He knew Michelle and Scott were together. He had even served the couple coffee in bed. As strange as the arrangement was, with Scott gone so often, it made everything easier to manage. Well, I mean, if they were all okay with it. Also, I think that speaks to everyone involved. The lack of boundaries or the lack of, I mean, in some realms, some self-respect. You know, oh, I'll just sleep on the couch while my fiancé's in bed with someone else. With all three men spoiling her with their riches, Kent offered, via the financial support his parents were providing, to assist in renovations on Michelle's house. With the house in unlivable conditions, John offered for Michelle to come live in his house with his teenage son. This, of course, meant Kent was part of the package. With more rooms at John's house, Michelle had her own, as did Kent. And when he was in town, Scott stayed there as well. Yes, you're understanding all of that correctly. Her three fiancés would all live together in one of the fiancés' homes. But it wasn't like they were all in a relationship together or having relations with each other. They were all just kind of in denial, or perhaps desperate. Maybe both. With Michelle in the house, 17-year-old John Carlin IV found an aunt-slash-stepmother figure in the only six-year-older Michelle. Even with so much potential jealousy or spite, all of the men got along really well, even developing friendships between them. It was at John's house investigators pulled up on May 3rd to find Michelle, John, and John IV outside of the house, going through what they would later find out were Kent's documents. That's when detectives took Michelle in the house to question her and broke the news about Kent's murder. With the questioning, officers started to learn all of the details about the three fiancés Michelle had gained in the past 18 months. Actually, there was even a Brent down in Barrow, Alaska, who may have been a fourth fiancé. At the very least, he was another boyfriend. There were also rumors of another boyfriend in the lower 48. Wow. As taken aback as the detectives were, Michelle assured them it wasn't a toxic situation. She had sworn to Kent that John was nothing more than a friend, a brother, really. Scott wasn't a threat. He was gay. To John, it was Kent who was gay and Scott who was just the friend. For Scott, things were different. Michelle admitted to truly loving him, and she wanted to actually marry him. They had been intimate and in the most legitimate relationship, even if he was around only half the time. So
0: you're telling me... That even living in the house together, they all had different perceptions of who each other were to. Yes. That's impressive. Yes.
2: I think that's how they managed to all live together. Because John would look at Scott and be like, oh, I don't have to worry about Scott. He's gay. And the other guy's a friend. Oh, and this guy's just this. And he's that. So I they're am, all like okay with each other. I am
0: shocked. That, that would be very hard to pull off for a yeah. long period of time. And again, I
2: think it speaks to everyone's cognitive ability, maybe, or willingness to accept things to make a life that they are so desperate for. Yeah, that's very sad. For the other two men, well, they were customers. Just as in the club, she was providing company. They showed their gratitude in gifts and car payments. When the one-year deadline Scott had put in place for he and Michelle's engagement came and went, he called the wedding off. With Scott out of the picture, John became the number one guy. After the breakup, Scott no longer resided in Alaska with Michelle and company, but their connection was undeniable and Michelle started to travel to California for visits. Eventually, Scott's visits up north started to become more frequent again. In fact, it was Scott Michelle was with around the time of Kent's murder. She had rendezvoused with him in Lake Tahoe at the end of April through early May 1996. This led investigators to question Scott. As part of the interview, they gave him a polygraph, of which he failed when asked if he killed Kent. Um. As we know, polygraphs aren't exactly what you would call reliable, but a failed one would certainly raise some eyebrows. Investigators then requested phone and airline records regarding his travels around the time of the murder, both of which were never followed up on. The investigators were literally content with the fact that he was willing to provide them. What? So they
0: they got them from him and just didn't look at them? Just sat him on a stack of papers, I guess. But or he had a failed test. You would think Just
2: only the question about if he killed the guy or not. <laughs> just, just that, that one. little question.
0: Wow. Great solid work, guys. <laughs> it's it's weird that this case
2: took so long to figure out. Very odd indeed. When it comes to the timeline, I say around the time of the murder because the coroner could only narrow the time of death to 24 to 48 hours prior to the discovery, the same window of time Michelle had been traveling home. Detectives decided to clear Scott after all of that thorough research and moved on to the other party, John III. John spoke with detectives but wouldn't give permission for his juvenile son to be interviewed, something he would not only have to permit but he would have to be present for. When asked about the murder, he denied any involvement. With such little evidence, investigators were desperate for one thing, the murder weapon. Based on the casings found at the scene, they believed it to be the uncommon 44 Magnum Desert Eagle. The reason you don't see these handguns often is due to their cumbersome size, heavy weight, and gnarly kickback. But the rarity was helpful to detectives as it would narrow their search. After learning of the living arrangements, detectives were able to obtain search warrants. In Michelle's house, they were seeking specifically to seize her computers, which happened to have been sent to her tech-savvy sister out of state to be worked on. They took other evidence, but there was nothing concrete connecting her to the
0: murder. Okay, (laughs) I have a computer problem. I'm going to package my computer up and send it to my sister Don't out Don't forget, of this is your 1996 computer. This is no Which laptop. is large. I had a big old Dell yeah. in, what, 2001? Yeah. That is weird. And I believe there were two computers. Now, I know you're in Alaska, but there's got to be someone you can pay 20 bucks an hour in town to help I you. I think
2: because her sister happened to be uh, a computer person Well, that implies shady shit to me. Uh, I I would agree. (laughs) Searching Kent's vehicle, which was still at the shared home, police found a note in the glove box that might have explained why Kent was in the small, remote town of Hope. What they found was a typed letter to Michelle from John. At the bottom, a handwritten response from Michelle. This was then dubbed the Hope letter. In part, it reads, from John, Dear Michelle, the roof on your cabin in Hope is finished. It will not leak anymore. You guys enjoy your stay in the cabin this weekend. With all the love I can have for a wonderful woman as you. And at the bottom, the handwritten reply from Michelle was saying in part, Great. Please don't let anyone know where we're at, but you already know that. When will the generator be rebuilt? And the back door? Does it close now? It appeared John had written a note to Michelle about a cabin he had purchased for her in Hope. Not only had he bought it, he finally finished fixing it up and knew she was wanting to use it with an unknown suitor. Detectives then went to Hope and asked local businesses if they recognized a photo of Kent, and they struck gold. Someone in a cafe had seen him. Like the officers, he had come in with a photo, but of Michelle, asking people if they had seen her, saying it was his missing fiancé. Oh. Days before Kent went to Hope, his father, fed up with the ambiguity surrounding his son's upcoming nuptials, went to Alaska to spend time with his son and Michelle, hoping to finalize wedding plans. Planning to have dinner together, Ken and Kent got to a restaurant and waited for Michelle. And waited. And waited. She never showed. For the rest of his visit, Ken helped in any way he could to try and locate Michelle. In that moment, it was clear his son was being used and his love for Michelle was not a mutual feeling from her. It was time for Ken to fly home, so Kent took him to the airport. On his way home, moments after seeing his father off, he dropped his ominous letters to his parents at the post office, hence the receipt in his pocket. He then called his mother, explaining he felt he could locate Michelle in Hope and that's where he was going. He had decided on Hope because he had found the Hope note in the house on the living room floor. Off he went, but he didn't have any luck finding her. It was within just a few days of his initial search he would be found dead in the same area. Investigators, still hanging on to Hope of their own, used the letter sent to Ken and Betsy and the Hope letter to put together a plot. It was clear to them Michelle had planned to be out of town with Scott because she knew she had talked John into taking Kent to the cabin in Hope and killing him. When investigators looked into public records, they found there was in fact no cabin in Hope or anywhere owned by John. Neither John nor Michelle had purchased a cabin. So why write the note unless it was to lure him there to be killed? Yeah. Simple. It was Michelle, who after being told Kent was dead, informed the police that no, he didn't have enemies or anything. And the only person to benefit from his death would be whomever the beneficiary was of his recently purchased $1 million life oh. insurance policy. A policy she said was a gift from her grandfather as a wedding present to the couple. That's an interesting wedding present. Isn't it though? Till death Just do in you case. part? <laughs> Just want to make sure you're all set. Thanks. I'm going to
0: give that to my next friend that gets married.
2: (laughs) And that brings us back to the paper in Kent's pocket, the change of beneficiary. Once Michelle ditched dinner and embarrassed Kent in front of his father, he sent in the documents to change the information to that of his parents.
0: Good for him.
2: Not only did Michelle know about the policy because she was there to sign it, she had called the insurance company while on her trip to Lake Tahoe. Was it to check if the policy was still active, or was she making sure it was still under her name? Those answers are still unknown. And while that phone call wasn't exactly evidence, it was suspicious. Yeah, it was. sure was. <laughs> Armed with a motive, detectives leaned on John, trying to locate the gun. He owned guns, but he didn't then, nor had he ever owned a 44 Magnum Desert Eagle. With one not found in the house, the story was either believed or they knew the gun was long gone. Investigators did everything they could to connect the dots they were certain would lead to the murderer, or in this case, murderers. But without the weapon or any DNA, the case went cold. Soon after the murder, John and Michelle made one more large purchase together. It was for a $75,000 RV they used to move from Alaska to Louisiana. She took up dancing again, but soon met a young med student— as their relationship blossomed, the one with John wilted, and he moved back to New Jersey. A $10,000 reward was offered for any information surrounding Kent's death, but nothing came of it. Four years. Then, in 2004, a new cold case unit was put together in Anchorage. As they sorted through their cases, the ones put to the top of the pile were those deemed most likely to get a conviction. Kent's was one of those cases. Going through the evidence, it was realized the computers, which had been seized from Michelle's sister, had never been looked at. Getting them open, it appeared over 90% of the hard drive had been deleted. By then, though, technology had advanced, allowing for old documents to be recovered. That's when Michelle's emails were discovered. Most frequently sent to her three fiancés, along with other customers, Michelle would use email to maintain the relationships. Did she have templates too <laughs> that she made? <laughs> Probably. Put in name This is here. for John. This is for validating the men's feelings, expressing her own, doing her best to make sure that they knew she cared for them. That basically seemed to be all they could find. But among the many emails, there were some questionable ones that spiked the interest of investigators. They noticed how in each message to each man, she was dismissive of their concerns about the other relationships. Each man was the only one for her. But love notes worthy of a Bachelor contestant wasn't all they found. In one email, they read just how sarcastic she could be about the relationships when writing to her mother about the engagement with Kent, saying in part, I love you so much, Mom, so are you going to be able to make our wedding? All my dreams came true that day. I took one look at this man, and I knew I wanted to be pregnant with his children. Ha ha ha. Oh, God. Her mother responding, Got your crazy email. Think you should become a writer like Stephen King. But sarcasm about a relationship isn't anything you can hang a murder charge on. Then there was an email from John. In a message proclaiming his love, he closed with, I would do anything for you. I'd give up my life for you. Again, not murder, but alarming to those looking at this through the lens of, would this man kill for this woman? Then there was the Seychelles email. In a message once again confirming her feelings while also talking about vacations, Michelle asked John if he knew that for only $10 million you can buy a citizenship in the Seychelles, an island country in the waters off East Africa. Oh, and they don't extradite. As damning as that may have seemed, without an email from Michelle to John saying, Hey, will you kill Kent for me? Detectives went back to the start. That's when an Alaskan trooper asked what John Carlin IV said in his interview. Going through the files, investigators realized there wasn't an interview because he had been underage at the time, and no one had questioned him since he had aged into adulthood. Going to Seattle, where John now resided, they asked him about May of 1996 and if he had seen or heard anything surrounding Kent's death. In fact, he had. Be it that he wanted to get the guilt off of his chest or he was pressured by police, John was the key when it came to the murder weapon. His father, who had since remarried and was living with his new family in Jersey, had in fact purchased a gun that was similar to a Desert Eagle. He had found it in a classified newspaper ad. The gun had gone missing a few months prior to Kent's murder, and in the time after Kent's death, the younger John had found the gun in a hall closet. He then heard his dad yell, Don't touch it! Don't touch it! After holding the gun, it was taken by his father, who then took it to a bathroom sink and cleaned it in bleach. Or at least that's what he told the grand jury and investigators. In what was a really fantastic piece of investigative work, Officer Blancheflower, who had taken over the case in the cold case unit, was able to find the classified ad John had used to buy the gun. Wow. Locating the previous owner, he didn't remember the name, but remembered distinct parts of the house he had gone to to sell the gun. Once John was confirmed as the buyer, officers then showed the seller the empty case, holster, and ammo holder they had discovered during their search. They felt the indentations in the holster and case were ones that would have matched up with a desert eagle, but it wasn't enough to say for sure. That was until the owner confirmed that those items were the same accessories he had sold with the gun. That is fantastic. While in the Seattle area, officers also found Michelle. They told her they were reviewing the case, following up with some clarifying questions. As she always had, Michelle cooperated, giving any information she could. As Officer Branchflower started to leave, Michelle asked to be kept abreast of any updates. She was told she would be notified. Notified of an indictment. <laughs> with that, John and Michelle were charged, both turning themselves in within days. The news of Michelle being arrested and charged with first-degree murder was shocking to those that knew her. She had married her doctor husband, Colin Leanhand, the day after he graduated medical school in 1998. He was the med student she had met while still in school and dancing in Louisiana. Very early in the relationship, she told Colin everything about her past life in Alaska, the dancing, the money, Kent's death, and he accepted all of it as just that, the past. After getting her bachelor's degree in biology and psychology, Michelle went on to get a master's in public administration. A year later, the couple had a daughter and had started their new life in Olympia, Washington. As the years went on, they were well-known and a well-liked couple, frequently hosting friends. Michelle kept busy volunteering at her daughter's Catholic church and school and was a member of the PTA. She and Colin had even started their own business, a health spa offering cosmetic injections. They had come a long way from their humble college student days.
0: After a long, stressful day in my virtual office, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a fantastic story with vivid characters I can love and love to hate. Does that do much to ask? Not at all. And thanks to Sundance Now, we always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and we can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance
2: Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime
0: shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. Like the hit British series, The Discovery of Witches, it's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons 1 and 2 are streaming now, and Season 3, the final season, started streaming on January 8th. So get Sundance
2: Now, now to start binging. There are already seven episodes of A Discovery of
0: Witches out now, and the finale drops February 19th. You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly.
2: I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now for free for 30 days by going to sundancenow.com and use the promo code MURDER IN THE RAIN. That's one word. That's sundancenow.com, code MURDER IN THE RAIN for 30 days of free streaming.
0: One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet.
2: True, I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the
0: world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice, do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest the hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host, a podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle.
2: Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show, or you're ready to move on from your stale
0: old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to
2: add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech
0: person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers.
2: If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly
0: improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com.
2: After turning himself in, John was charged with first-degree murder. Pleading not guilty, he was held in jail for six months until his trial began in early 2007. The burden always falls on the state to prove guilt. And boy, did they have a burden with this one. Because of the lack of evidence, they were vague about who, between Michelle and John, was the one responsible for pulling the trigger. The defense wasn't cocky enough to feel like this was a slam dunk, but the lack of anything but circumstantial evidence made them feel confident there was far too much doubt for him to be convicted. Unlike the prosecution, the defense decided the easiest target would be Michelle. For John, that was a problem. In talking to reporters after the trial, he felt his team had been so focused on Michelle they were busy convicting her instead of freeing him. When asked about the Hope letter, there was a perfectly logical explanation. It was exactly what the prosecution had implied, a lure. But not to Kent's death, simply away from Michelle. According to John and Michelle, Kent's behavior had become concerning. He had hacked Michelle's personal emails, was tracking her phone calls, and was following her. All in all, he had gone from wannabe fiancé to stalker. When Michelle planned to leave for Tahoe, John agreed to type up the letter, purposefully leaving it for Kent to find so he would go to Hope and be off of the trail of Michelle and Scott. Besides the lack of evidence, defense offered other possibilities. Scott's alibi was never confirmed. Perhaps he left Tahoe after Michelle and got to Kent while he was in Hope. Sure, that was a stretch, but they only needed to prove reasonable doubt. Then there was John IV. He was only 17 at the time of the murder and the fiance-filled house, but he was still a 17-year-old boy. Michelle had a way with men, and of everyone in the house, he was closest to her age. Or, even if they didn't have an affair, he could have also felt a desire to do anything to make her happy, so he could have found the gun and acted alone. There was no proof, of course, but again, just as feasible as any other variation. Finally, the blame was put on Michelle. It wasn't just that she was the mastermind behind the murder plot, she had acted alone, blaming John. Scott took the stand for the prosecution, saying he believed not only that John had a hand in the killing, but that Michelle, with her spellbinding powers, had used all of them to get anything and everything she wanted. He felt used when it came to the trip to Lake Tahoe that he was merely an alibi for Michelle's plan. But none of that mattered when John IV took the stand. Testifying for the prosecution, he told the story of finding the gun in the closet and his dad washing it in the sink with bleach. He couldn't say for sure if the gun was a Desert Eagle, but it did fit the description. It was the same story he had told investigators and the grand jury. Only this time, Michelle was standing in the bathroom doorway watching John clean the gun while they both shot looks at the boy telling him not to worry about it. This was something he actually said on the stand, and I'm no lawyer, but I was kind of shocked that no one objected to him saying what he felt the look on his father's face meant. Yeah, that is a good point. Because he said, oh, he was looking
0: at me and it felt like he was saying, don't worry about it. I mean, I guess he does know his father better than anyone else, I suppose.
2: I, I would love to hear if anyone is a lawyer. I'd love to hear if that's something that should have been allowed. The only response the defense could give about the gun in the sink was that John was so used by Michelle this was just another one of her messes that he was stuck cleaning up. Countering the testimony that he would later say was the biggest regret of his life, John also mentioned the family dog Roscoe. Like most dogs, at the slightest sound, Roscoe would have barked to the point of waking up anyone in the house. John couldn't have snuck out of the house via the garage without Roscoe letting everyone know. Was Roscoe a fiancé as well? (laughs) (laughs) You little rascal. Once both sides stated their cases, the jury was left to decide. After four days, they returned with a verdict, guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge, speaking to the coldness of the killing, handed down the maximum sentence, 99 years. John wouldn't be up for probation for nearly 40 years. Now it was time for Michelle's trial. After landing a conviction on the flimsy evidence in John's case, prosecution was even more confident than before, but so was Michelle. She knew she hadn't been involved and knew there was no evidence connecting her. Just as with John, the emails were used to show how cold Michelle could be, that she clearly didn't care about these men. Unlike John, Michelle's past life was at the forefront of scrutiny, prosecution basically implying... If she was willing to take off her clothes for money, how could she not be willing to kill for it? Ugh, barf. All of her gifts given to her, not asked for, were used as weapons, proof she was only using the men for what she could. When they were more financially supportive dead than alive, well, then she would simply have them killed off for insurance. The defense had answers for most pieces of evidence. Again, Kent had become such an invasive stalker, on top of having financial issues, Michelle needed to leave the hope letter to keep him from making her feel unsafe. As for the emails, sure, she may have come off as disingenuous, but if she had been concocting a plan to have Kent murdered, wouldn't there have been some mention of it somewhere, anywhere? Wouldn't John have slipped up, or a time or a date, location or plan would have been alluded to? And the Seashells exoneration conversation? Also in that email were mentions of other locations as she and John were planning on taking a vacation. As he was a lover of fun facts, she happened to have learned about the purchasing of citizenship and wanted to share it with him. Hmm. Even if it had been in regards to making an escape, it was a million-dollar insurance policy, not $10 This information was so trivial, the defense pointed out that John didn't even respond to it.
0: I do have to agree with her there. Like a million dollars is a- much different than 10 million.
2: And you can easily say I, I was looking something up and maybe a Wikipedia page or a something sure. said like, did you know? And
0: being that person who comes up with those kind of facts for people all the time, I yeah. can relate. Yeah.
2: When it came to the relationship with Kent, Michelle explained that he was gay and was using her as a cover. There are reports of a confirmed homosexual relationship Kent had at one point, but it was not something there was ever solid evidence for.
0: But that contradicts the other argument that he was basically her stalker and obsessed with her if he was gay.
2: I don't know that it does. I don't think stalker equals sexual necessarily. Hmm. That he could have just or maybe bisexual Um, but also it could have become like an obsession more so than just wanting to
0: have her sexually white female. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
2: Ken's parents find all of this very hard to believe, not because they didn't want their son to be gay, but they claimed if he had come out to them, they would not have cared. And he knew that they had unconditional love for him. A fake girlfriend or marriage wouldn't have been necessary. Michelle's lawyers argued that in April of 96, Kent was displaying signs of a mental health crisis, hence the letter he sent to his parents. The blame being placed on John, Scott, and Michelle was also used to show that he was unwell. Why would someone claim to be in love to the point of obsession and then turn around and ask for them to be
0: punished? I Well, I don't know. I feel like it's pretty plausible. You, you've you invested all this money and time into a person, then It sinks in that they're using you and you get pissed and you want to do something about it. I don't think that is mental illness. I think he was mad. Fair. You know, that's fair. With such a lack
2: of evidence, the state could only do one thing, tear Michelle down because she had been a stripper. Once again, every gift, like the $11,000 diamond ring or the $3,200 fur, the cash, checks, and vacations, were all used to paint her as a manipulative ice queen who only saw men as a target, not a person. When Kent decided to start a fishing tender business of his own, she knew he was more of a fisherman than a businessman. So they started the business together. That's when the life insurance came in. As coverage, should anything happen and the boat needed to be paid for? Their shared bank account, surely a maneuver by her to have even more access to his money. In efforts to counter the painting of Michelle as a tawdry user of men, the defense pointed out the life Michelle had been living for the last 11 years. If she was such a murderous chameleon who only cared about money, why did she date her husband when he was broke and didn't even have a car? She had set out to make money to go to school, and that's exactly what she did. Then, former dancer Laura Aspiotas was brought to the stand on behalf of the prosecution. She had worked with Michelle at the Great Alaskan Bush Company, and they developed a friendship, hanging out and watching movies after work. But Laura wasn't just a casual viewer. Like our own Josh, she actually had journals where she marked down what she watched, when she watched it, and with who. Laura then testified that she had watched the 1994 sensual thriller The Last Seduction with Michelle, She claimed it was Michelle's favorite film and that Linda Fiorentino's murderous character was her hero. In the film, a woman wants a divorce but instead begs her lover to kill the husband. He doesn't, but she does, and she pins it on the lover. With the husband out of the picture and the boyfriend locked up, she walks away single, ready to mingle with her large insurance payout. It was a story not all that different from the case they were in the midst of. Strangely, as detailed as Laura was about what Michelle had said, she couldn't find the viewing anywhere in her journals. Oh.
0: Does she have a reason to lie?
2: They, I did not find anything about her maybe not getting charged with something but it
0: does make you wonder what the motivation was yeah like maybe they had a falling out and she was getting back at her and you
2: could tell too that michelle was a different kind of dancer some of the girls would talk and they had been friends so they were like that girl she raked in the money and she was busy every night and maybe she stole her boyfriend but well but then you think well if i'm a dancer there and maybe i don't like her and i'm watching her get all the men when i'm standing here trying to do the same work yeah you could just be bitter or angry or who knows. Wanting to show just how similar the stories were, the prosecutor even made a request to show the film to the jury.
0: It oh. was denied.
2: Oh, man, that would have been a
0: great jury to be on if they allowed that. Is that <laughs> not the most cartoonish evidence you've ever heard? <laughs> I'd this like you person to might this have watched a
2: movie.
0: I mean, I could see it. What if somebody did replicate a film like to the T in a crime? I know there are copycat crimes, but it's like
2: to show it, yeah, it's silly. Like that because that's as strong as their case was, it was like, Watch this, that's what she did. The phone call to the insurance office was brought up as it occurred so close to Kent's death. Perhaps she wanted to make it look like she didn't care about him or that she wanted to make sure that she was off the insurance to separate herself from the man who was stalking her. Once again, John the Fourth testified, telling the same story he had told at his father's trial, the gun, the closet, the bleach, Michelle watching. More than anything, Michelle felt bad for John. She could sense his regret and that he didn't want to testify but felt he was doing the right thing. Colin, Michelle's husband, also took the stand. He talked about everything his wife had disclosed to him and the woman she had become, begging those listening to not judge her for the woman she had been. After they had married, Colin had been deployed to Iraq as an army medic. During that time, Michelle had taken her daughter to Minnesota, where she encountered her old flame, Scott. They were both married at the time, and the prosecution used the one-time affair that took place during that visit to show Michelle was still making the same harmful decisions she had before, so she hadn't grown or changed. There was other testimony against Michelle. The troopers that had informed her of the death said they felt her reaction was fake and insincere. Her sister reported that Michelle had said she wished Kent had been tortured the same way he had treated the animals he had hunted. Michelle not only regretted but apologized for making those statements, saying she was frustrated with how he had been stalking her. Kent's mother was appalled and disgusted. How could you wish for someone to be tortured for hurting animals when you were happily accepting and wearing fur coats? For Betsy, she felt Kent had been tortured by his love of Michelle. After a month of trial and testimony, both sides gave their closing arguments, the defense nearly mocking the idea of a letter and movie leading to a murder. For John and Michelle, both legal teams had talked them out of taking the stand in their own defense. They felt the risk of a prosecutor tearing them a new one when they had such little evidence was too great. After two days of deliberations, Michelle stood, her husband allowed to be by her side to hold her hand, as the foreman read the jury's decision guilty of murder in the first degree. Michelle's eyes stayed glazed over, the light leaving her face. As numb as she appeared, Colin was emotional. When it came time to sentencing, the same judge felt he had no choice but to give Michelle the same treatment as John, as it was decided John wouldn't have killed Kent if it hadn't been for Michelle. After a final embrace with her husband, Michelle left for her 99 years behind bars. Like John, she wouldn't be up for probation until she was 68 years old. A day before the jury was given the case, a member was removed, the details of which are unclear, but that juror was shocked to hear the outcome, saying if they had remained on the jury, there was no way it wouldn't have had, at the very least, been deadlocked. They never would have convicted her. Ken and Betsy were certain they had finally received the justice their son deserved. John the gunman and Michelle the mastermind were serving their time. John who you would think would have rolled on Michelle if it had meant getting less time, no matter how obsessed with her he was, never said anything about her being involved. He did, however, admit after the trial that he did own a Desert Eagle handgun. Why hadn't he admitted to it earlier? He claimed it was because he knew from the start he was a suspect. If he admitted to having the gun, he would have been pinned right away. Mm -hmm. So he didn't admit he owned one or that it was lost, When it was found, he was only worried about getting it clean and gone. So after the bleach bath, he tossed it in a grocery store dumpster. Kind of makes you wonder what he knew about bullet casing matching. You know, did he know that they could match the gun casings so he tossed it because it was the weapon?
0: Or did he not know that he could have cleared his name by holding on to it? And did he know what it was used for or did he just suspect something went down? Exactly. That's... This is a very interesting case. Lots of I have suspicion. To
2: Finally, after more than a decade, the Olympic family felt justice was served and their son's killers were behind bars and would be for a very long time. Or at least that's what they had hoped. Uh-oh. For Colin, he went from happy husband and business owner to full-time single parent for his young daughter, while Michelle spent her time in Alaska's only women's prison. Visits up north would happen as often as he could make it, but it wasn't an easy trek. John's son remained in Washington and vocalized not only his regret in testifying, but claimed his statements were pressured out of him by investigators. Perhaps that's why his story changed over time. That was all at the end of 2007. In 2008, everything changed for both parties. First, Michelle's legal team filed an appeal. They based it off 38 points, two of which were of most importance, Kent's Dead Man's Letter and the film. As the letter was written by someone who, due to being dead, was unavailable for questioning, it should have been considered hearsay. Second was the prosecution's use of the last seduction. As there was no connection between the film, the case, and Michelle, lawyers felt it, too, should have been barred from being used as some sort of pseudo-evidence.
0: I'm going to have to agree with them on that. That was a flimsy case. I feel like John's case was much stronger than Mm -hmm. because of the gun.
2: Yeah. While her team waited to hear an answer, there was another murder that would change everything. After being behind bars for only a few months, John's passivity, which had been talked about by his friends who had never seen him angry or violent, worked against him. In those first few months, John was involved in multiple assaults, outsiders saying it was due to him being put in a high-security prison with people who were actual murderers. After the first two beatings, John met with prison officials asking to either be moved away from those who continued to assault and harass him or to be moved to a new prison. Hmm. The first attack took place after John changed the TV channel, even though several inmates were watching a program. The beating was to teach him respect. Per the assailants.
0: That's interesting. We had a case a while back where the exact same scenario happened. Yeah. An inmate changed the channel and got killed for it. I think you've got
2: people who have anger problems that aren't being dealt with or rehabilitated and you don't have a lot of things going on. So when that's like the only action
0: taking yeah. place. And there's rules about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Oof, imagine going in and not knowing those rules. Well, that's that's why I would
2: hide in the corner forever.
0: (laughs) Get myself a mama.
2: On October twenty seventh, two 2008, John was in the day room when attackers found him. Perhaps it was another lesson to be taught, or he was just chosen as a victim. His screams for help were ignored by correctional officers. Mm. Soon after, his body was found after being beaten to death. Investigators attempted to process evidence from the beating, but there was such a major backlog in DNA testing, they knew it would take time. Those who felt John was not only wrongfully convicted but unjustly murdered felt the DA was dragging their feet as the killers were obviously already behind bars and the deceased was a convicted murderer. The DA denied those allegations, and investigators did finally admit that there were mishandlings. The pressure from family outcry and a lawsuit brought by John IV for wrongful death did force the investigation to find some answers. And while he didn't get the $500,000 he was asking for, John did get a $150,000 settlement from the state.
0: Wow. Yeah, not too bad. But I'm surprised. Usually they try to cover up Mm -hmm, their tracks Especially for an inmate. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, maybe he wasn't supposed to be there.
2: In 2010, two men in their 20s were charged with the blunt force trauma murder. I couldn't find anything about a conviction, but with one of them getting out in 2015 and the other set to have been released in late December of last year, it doesn't appear they served much, if any time, for the murder. Well, and they must not have been in for murder in the first place. Right. So maybe, and like manslaughter. So like, maybe it was just concurrent with their other charges. Yeah. Also in 2010, Michelle got answers from her appeal. It was approved and her conviction was thrown out. Wow. After two years in prison, Michelle now waited in prison for new charges to be brought and a new trial to begin. Unexpectedly, Brian Watt, who didn't know Michelle but as a business analyst felt she was innocent, put up the $25,000 bail getting her home while waiting for charges. To the shock of many, those charges never (gasps) came. What? In what she might consider a lucky break, John's death played a huge part in Michelle not being tried again. With his family working to clear his name, John's death led to his charges being dropped posthumously. He was no longer the gunman, so the state would have to have proved oh. that Michelle was acting alone. This is horrible, because, like, who else would have done it? Oh. On top of that, they would have to do it without mentioning the dead man's note or the last seduction, the two strongest pieces of evidence that they had had against her.
0: The legal system really blows when you know somebody was guilty of something, but you can't prove it. (laughs) With literally
2: speculation and judgment, all that was left for the DA to stand on, they folded. No charges would be brought. Michelle was free. She went back to Washington... It's said that she and Colin have since separated, but are still co-parents and they co-own their skincare business in Tacoma. Something I never found information about was the second set of prints at the scene. I read one report saying that they hadn't matched John or Michelle, but it makes me wonder if they were brought up by prosecution or defense. Because if they didn't match, I would think the defense would want to push that point. And if they had matched, it would have been a good point for the prosecution. And they did, they, would they have checked against Scott, too? You, well should they have would be the question yes they should have did they there's no telling oh boy ken's father ken passed away in 2011 with the two presumed culprits out of jail and deceased ken lempick's death was once again placed on the cold case file if you have any information you are asked to call 907-269-5511 For those that knew Michelle in Alaska, she was a young, trusting woman who was showered with gifts because she was good at her job. For those that were presenting her as a murderer, she was nothing but a whore who was willing to use people, especially men, for any benefit she could. Was her life destroyed because of a sexist, archaic witch hunt? Or did she get away with murder? Theories remain. Michelle acted alone. John acted alone. Even Kent could have somehow planned or even paid for someone to kill him, placing the blame on Michelle.
0: And I would love to hear your theories, Emily. It is really hard not to think immediately that Michelle coaxed people into this because she benefits from it. She had a history of getting these men to give her gifts. It is not a huge leap that she would, you know, we've seen it before. You convince your lover to get the person out of the way and then run off with the money. So that I buy. John doesn't have a history of violence so that would be really hard I think to murder someone and then just never be violent again so I question who pulled the trigger for sure I have something scandalous to say oh my
2: gosh you don't think it was either of them I don't think it was Michelle and here's why I watched several things this is on like a 48 hours and dateline in 2020 it's snapped it's been on a ton of shows And those that she did interviews with, she she's very emotional, which I know can be divisive to be, you know, is that sincere? Is it not? There's something about how she was presented in every news article and even on 48 hours and these mainstream news things where it was like, she's the stripper and she's like, she's just way more with it. But all along, it's like these dudes are way older than you. We're talking 15, 18 years and no one is going. Hey, shouldn't these grown adult men
0: be more responsible for what they choose to do with their money than like what this twenty-one year old is willing blame, to accept? I don't blame her for them their actions, but there are people who are more charismatic and persuasive, right? But it is on the person. I, I lean a I lean a bit towards John, but it's also like,
2: how was there nothing like? they just said you know oh yeah he's at home and the dog didn't bark yeah that's not the tightest alibi and it's like yeah if this guy's living on your couch and you just want to have this life with this woman he did seem more um he he, i mean he was clearly enamored with her when he was speaking um and scott talking with the prosecution he came off bitter just like i spent all this money and I don't know what he was expecting except to get married, I guess, to have a trophy wife. And she's like, actually, I'd rather, you know, keep being single and have all these guys that want to get me stuff, which is like, that's great. Good for you. Sugar baby. That's wonderful. That's your thing. I think my biggest hesitancy to think that there is involvement besides how she is portrayed, you know, she's the the vixen, the slut, the whore that's going to, you know, she'll kill you for money. It's not like these guys were all the smartest. So to not have a single email of like, can't wait for Wednesday or, you know, like yeah, something. some sort of weird language or keywords or something, even if they couldn't get all the emails back, you think that there'd be enough planning. I mean, unless you're talking about someone who's so cunning that she knew to only talk in person or just whispered in his ears. But then it's also like,
0: well, she you did would move away and start over. If they were that cunning and masterminds, you think they'd have some kind of history to do. Right. Do they have criminal histories, any of these people? Oh, any of the guys? I don't. I... Or Michelle. No, I don't believe any of them did. So I, f- I, I personally sure. feel like in order to be a criminal mastermind, you would have right. had to like been a criminal and made mistakes in the past right. to learn from them. So but I mean, say she isn't. Who did it? John? He he also has a really flimsy case if she has a really flimsy case. Right. Who else could have potentially done it then?
2: Yeah. I, well, I don't and see that's the Kent setting they, it
0: up himself at all. That's a very big leap. Well,
2: uh, yeah, they did say that, that it was like, you know, because the letter... You have to think about, like, we've got someone who um, was willing to steal from his... And this isn't to victim blame at all. This is just going through his history the way we're going through and theirs, their argument. To say... You know, we've got someone who was embezzling from his own family. We've got someone who was, you know, living out on a boat. We've got someone who got engaged within a month of meeting a dancer. Not to say that you can't do that, but, I mean, there's that old joke of like, no, she really likes me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's it's a job. Um, you know, so it's like his decision making seemed uh, alarming as I went through it. and it, or And like... Maybe a lack of development, you know, was he so coddled by his parents or something that he was just kind of delayed. So he's like, she does like me. We're in love. Maybe. So I think that's where people got the idea of like, especially with the letters, this guy is so out there. Is he willing to be like, hey, Johnny, I'll pay you 50 bucks to drive out here
0: and just shoot me three times? Yeah, I just don't. I don't see that happening. But oh yeah, I mean of, that's
2: a way stretch, but it was something that multiple people had mentioned. Of one being of a the defense
0: arguments that I think we could write off is they mentioned, um, how would she go from getting all this money from all these men to then dating someone who's a poor mm. college student? Mm-hmm. That happens, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe she regretted her actions and was like, "I'm never going to do something right. like that again," and or yeah, I went too far or actually fell in love with someone yeah you could be uh, with you know handling all your puppets for money and then actually fall in love with a poor person yeah
2: and I think that's what um, keeps drawing me into like not thinking that she was involved because it's like she did exactly what she set out to do she could have stayed in Alaska she could have just kept finding new marks having new fiancés having a lot of money and gifts and but, living that life but instead she moved
0: but i'm saying the argument could go either way it could be an argument oh, yeah, for that or not doing it but it could also be she doesn't want to do it again right. and she wants to move on from that past this right. so is very interesting I, that there yeah. are so many possible scenarios yeah and i for the record um
2: i did reach out to her office and i felt terrible writing her at work um but i i wrote her and just said I'm more interested in hearing about what it was like as someone in your very early 20s to be depicted as this villain sex monster because these grown men were angry because you were using
0: your womanly ways to upset them. Over and over and over. Look at the girl in the box case. Like they made that not about the torment she suffered, Mm -hmm. but about her character, which Mm was bonkers. So it's interesting, you know, and I looked up some reviews
2: and people have left bad reviews just being like you're a murderer she's been acquitted so if we're gonna say on one hand our justice system you know is working and and put away the green river killer if she's gone through the process and they have no case which they have no case innocent until proven guilty you have to go all right and i honestly don't i i I lean more consistently that she wasn't involved and I'm... I don't know if I just feel bad that she was kind of a victim in her
0: own way. And so that's clouding my judgment. It could be. I don't know. It's hard. I'm an evidence-based person. So when there is no evidence, you're like, well.
2: Yeah. And there's no other sign. You'd think for someone like that, that there'd be another occasion where you were involved in life insurance or she would have
0: all the circumstantial stories yeah. in the world. But unless there's real evidence, you- I mean, you got to accept it, I guess. But it's tricky. That is tricky. because yeah. That can change based on someone giving you a weird vibe and you just know they did it you know well and it
2: could have easily and I, and another part that i always go back to is john didn't roll over on her and if your lawyer comes up to you and i would have yeah yeah you're facing 99 years um you could also end up being beaten to death in prison i'd be like Do you I have will any talk. information mm-hmm. and number one he didn't take a plea deal i which yeah. i find surprising if he had been involved and number two he wasn't like yeah she told me to do it
0: I know I would bargain it for everything I could to get in like a Mm -hmm. a better prison. And you know the other thing that I think is really interesting, on a totally different topic, why wouldn't they let Michelle be in a Washington prison because she has a family? Like that is Mm. messed up. I think there are plenty of really horrible killers out there who have been able to convince the legal system to to move them. Yeah. So I'm very surprised by that. Yeah. To
2: say, like, my whole life is down there. But and you have uh, a daughter who's again, growing they, up. Again, they based it on the coldness of the act. But, again, he didn't roll over on her. So that makes me think he either, maybe he knew because of the hope note, he knew, okay, Kent's going to be out there. And he was able to manage the dog or whatever. Your kid is in a deep sleep and you're like, and oh, He hey, did Roscoe. it on his own. Oh, it's okay. Be quiet, Roscoe. I'm gone. Okay, bye. You can sneak out quietly. And then to not say anything, I find that really hard to believe. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I end up with John deciding to just be done with him. He's upsetting my girl, who I love so much. He's stalking her. He's making her feel unsafe. I know where he's going to be.
0: Yeah. I'd say of all the scenarios, that's the most plausible to me is that he was fed up with this weird love square well and he's the most involved because like for Scott
2: you know it's very suspicious that they didn't go through the his airline tickets and they didn't go through his alibi and all of this stuff and he you know failed the polygraph but he didn't unless it was Michelle talking about the life insurance and he knew that she was going to get that money that he randomly flew up there but that one seems like that's that's kind of like right above plausibility of of Kent hiring someone to do it for yeah. him, you know. So uh, it is a thinker. It is complicated. I don't know why it's not a movie yet. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And there are, like I said, there's 48 Hours and Snapped. Um, you can look up Michelle or Kent's name and, and find those episodes. It's really fascinating. And it's really interesting to watch how the different shows present her mm. and how she was already basically a murderer because she took gifts from
0: people it's pretty cool to watch feels good to be a woman sometimes i know that's frustrating <laughs> like, it's like people who go to work with one personality and come home you can't just hold them to that personality the whole right. time like she has a persona at work yeah that she is benefiting from that doesn't make someone a cold calculated person yeah, it's like
2: it's It's not different than a
0: model. But at the same time, you could exploit your skills Mm -hmm. at convincing people, at being charismatic and getting them to love you. And if that's what you're good at. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean she did
2: that. Right. And these are adult men going into an adult establishment with their bank card that they are an adult responsible for. Like,
0: hey, we've all all spent a little too much money at a strip club. Am I right? I know I have. (laughs) Tell me about it. Ooh, I like oh, you. Yeah. <clears throat> get ready to get harny. Oh no. What will I do? <laughs> I wasn't even looking it's at you, me. I was looking at my own reflection. <laughs> I was look. You can like I <laughs> believe you. <laughs> that is not something you would ever have to
2: convince me of. Kent Lippick grew up in Michigan with his parents, who were second-generation grocery store owners. Grocery store owners. I (laughs) own a grocery store. Come and buy my fruit. (laughs) At my grocery store.
0: You need a slice of steak? Come on in. To my grocery store.
1: (laughs) A a slice of steak. (laughs) It's just,
0: everything's just off a little.
1: That's so funny. (laughs)
0: It's like the Dollar Tree, but for fruit. Br- br- <laughs> Just get on in this. Oh, yeah. Get your mic up your mouth.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Great Alaskan Bush Company
2: Gentlemen's Club. <laughs> Sorry, that is good. I mean, everyone listening's giggling. We might as well have a pause for it. Dancing might not have been maybe the most impression impressive.
0: <laughs> oh, is she like that girl we saw in Vegas that we always were waiting. She kept like doing the same dance oh around the pole. Like I it's gonna be good. About it's her. gonna be good. And it just <laughs> every. She just like
2: walked in a circle. <laughs> We're like, come on, she's building up to something. <laughs> nope, she's just going on a walk.
0: <laughs> Rub and tug.
2: <laughs> Kent was now not only a fiance, but for the first time in his life, a dad. <laughs>
0: <I'm> sorry, <laughs> <I'm>
1: sorry. <laughs> I had to.
2: That was good. <laughs>
0: it's you just, know what I love is fun. Twists.
1: The name of the strip club. That's one of the yes. best yes. names of anything I've ever heard in my life. Yep. They knew what they were doing.
0: I would like. Is it still there? Yes. We're going to oh go God. take a trip. Yes. Like, can we do a show there? Yes. Oh, <gasps> oh, yes. My God. A middle of the day, like early evening, With a Friday free bu- night. Yeah, free buffet. Oh, my God. Yes. A free buffet. <laughs> free Bush. Oh, God. It's so funny. The like city tries to shut it down that you can't have Bush near food. Oh, God. <laughs>
2: bush
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can't have bush
2: near food get that
1: bush away from there
2: the coroner could only narrow the time of death to 24 not 28 you stupid idiot with such little little, little, little <clears throat> with such little evidence nope that sounds crazy the 1994 sensual thriller the last seduction the last, oh, the last slurduction. My mouth is getting to a slurduction. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. I'm here all <laughs> night. <laughs> that is an I. Fiorentine. You got to
0: put your hand up like this, too.
2: She acclaimed it was Michelle's <laughs> favorite <laughs> film, and Linda Fiorentino, character was a hero.
1: Is that Lady Gaga? Ah! Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at KYFIFER.com.